Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Tarantino. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Jamie Alter. Jamie, how are you? Hi, Bob. Doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be having this conversation with you. So before we get into the conversation, our usual disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. So Jamie, we're going to talk today about three different but related types of agreements, option agreements, shopping agreements, and attachment agreements. So I think lawyers and clients tend to conflate or confuse these different types of agreements. So why don't we start by setting out what actually distinguishes these different forms or types of agreements? So you're right, Bob. Option agreements, shopping agreements, and attachment agreements, they're all similar in that it involves an intellectual property owner And someone, whether it's a producer or someone who's well-connected in the industry who wants to get this piece of intellectual property off the ground and hopefully onto the screens. So an option agreement is the route to go when the property in question is governed by a writer's guild. So in the writer's guild agreements, they provide for certain terms, for instance, minimum option fees, maximum terms of the option period, and things like that that have to be taken into account. For option agreements, they provide the most certainty in that you have specified purchase price. So if the project were to gain interest and momentum from a broadcaster or financier, and we want to go into production, for that piece of property, the option agreement will actually tell you, okay, upon payment of X number of dollars, this property will be yours and you have the right to do with it what you wish subject to the contractual terms of the agreement. And that is great. And from a risk mitigation perspective, that is the preferred route route to go, except it becomes very tedious in that you're trying to account for every possible scenario. So what if the first production happens to be a television production? Okay, that's great. We know what what terms attach to that. But then what happens if we want to do a derivative production of that television production that is a feature film? What type of royalties would attach to that? What type of purchase price would that be? And there's just so many different permutations that you're trying to conceive and address all in this one agreement before the property even goes near production. So while it's great that we try to account for everything, and again, from a cost uh, from a cert- cost certainty perspective for the producer, it tends to provide comfort. It does actually provide a little bit of, um, you have to go through a cost benefit analysis to see whether it's worth the time and expense coming up with that agreement. Um, To note also option fees in the context of an option agreement, those tend to be somewhat costly depending a whether the property in question is governed by the guilds because again there's minimums that attach and also the caliber 
of the property in question. So if it's something that has a lot of heat and there's a lot of competition around it and you're trying to secure that property and the exclusive rights in that property, there will generally be higher fees associated with that. So it, would it be safe to say then that you can sort of plot attachment shopping and option agreements kind of on a spectrum in other words like so an attachment agreement is sort of like the simplest form then a shopping agreement is a little more complicated and then as you describe it option agreements are kind of like the cadillac version right like they they cover every conceivable permutation and variable and you should you know th those are suitable for circumstances where there's a lot of money behind the project and there's a lot of certainty that the project is moving forward am i do you think i'm mischaracterizing it in that way no, I think that that's a great way of looking at it. And it's interesting because a shopping agreement and an attachment agreement, those um, those can be viewed almost, they're viewed even synonymously in some cases. And I think in Canada though, versus the US, those terms denote different meanings. In Canada, a shopping agreement I've, I've seen a shopping agreement be almost like a poor man's option agreement. It's a way of circumventing guild requirements. And it says, okay, I'm going to use my network. I'm going to leverage my connections and see if I can get this piece of property off the ground. And if I do, these are the terms that will attach. And if it is a guild governed property, that is not okay. And it is not kosher. And the guilds might come after you or after their member. Um, Whereas an attachment agreement, or sometimes in the case of a shopping agreement in the US, an attachment agreement says, okay, if we do get this property off the ground, you, IP owner, you are going to negotiate the terms of your agreement with the ultimate buyer, financier, broadcaster, whomever, and the terms of that agreement, of which I will not be party, is going to set out what you are selling the property for and all of the terms that attach to that, whereas I will be attached in the capacity of producer, let's say, and I will negotiate my own respective agreement. And neither one of us can sign off on our agreements without knowing that the other person is comfortable with their agreement. So that concept of a shopping or attachment agreement would be on one end of the spectrum. The middle would be the shopping agreement, which is a quasi poor man's option agreement. And then the full robust nine yards option agreement would be on the other side of the spectrum. And I think that the costs associated with each of those agreements would also be on a spectrum. Um, both in terms of what is paid up front to the IP owner, if anything. And in the case of a shopping agreement or an attachment agreement, there really doesn't tend to be much payment transferring hands at the beginning, but also the costs and the time that go into negotiating these agreements would be on a spectrum with the attachment and shopping agreement being pretty run of the mill we'll each negotiate the terms at a later date. We're not going to invest much time unless we know that this property is a go. Whereas an option agreement, as we were saying before, we try to set out from the forefront every possible permutation of a production that could be lifted off the ground. Yeah, so I like the way you frame that. So just to dive into sort of a parenthetical there for a second, the because this is something I always get tripped up on. I don't love advising clients on the prices that they should be paying, 
right? In other words, like here's how much you should be getting for, you know, the right to go shop the project, or here's how much you should be paying for, you know, one year of an option. Here's how much you should be paying for the second year. Here's how much you should be paying for the purchase price. To what extent do you think it's, it's a good or bad idea for lawyers to kind of weigh in on that sort of angle of one of these contracts? I think that we can provide our experience and, you know, with all of the aggregated option terms that we've seen over the years, we've kind of seen a trend, so to speak, and we can kind of provide some range. But ultimately, I leave all business decisions up to our clients. I think that I would tell them the different factors that would go into the analysis. Like, as I was saying before, how many people are knocking on this IP owner's door, wanting the exclusive rights to shop the property, wanting to be attached to the property. I think that that is huge relative to a book that was published 20 years ago that has been laid dormant. And why now is everyone going to start wanting this property? If no one has for the past 20 years, I think that you're safe to say that it's not a very competitive ask. So I think that you can get in on a much lower purchase price. If it's a screenplay, I tend to, even if it's not governed by the guild, I tend to look at the guild agreements um, to provide guidance and whether you're going to actually match those numbers, whether for option fee or purchase price, I think that it does provide somewhat of a benchmark um, against which you can find your own purchase price or option or option fee. Right, nice. I like using that idea of using the guild agreements as a benchmark. I mean, I think it's also a function of it's really incumbent on on producers and rights owners to have those conversations with you know agents and peers and colleagues in the industry to get a sense of you know exactly where the market is at any given time for any particular property or set of rights so it sounds like you know attachment agreements are going to be pretty simple hopefully for everybody involved option agreements are going to be pretty complicated Let's talk a little bit about what it is that should be in an option agreement and kind of what it is that some pitfalls that people sometimes encounter by not including certain provisions in option agreements or overlooking or not considering certain things in option agreements. So, for example, one thing that I uh, always find to be a particular challenge is reversions, right? Reversions of rights under the option agreement. Um, That's something that I think like a sophisticated party will will recognize that the the contract should recognize or should speak to the the concept of reversions. Um, so what is a reversion and how do you normally see that being addressed in an option agreement? Well, I think whereas a shopping and attachment agreement, there's no actual rights that have been conveyed, whether during the shopping term or um or afterwards by function of this agreement because it does require a separate negotiation. Whereas an option agreement, there is actually a conveyance of rights. So upon exercise of the option, there is a conveyance of rights. But what happens if you don't get the property off the ground, notwithstanding exercising the option? So if you've paid the purchase price, do you just have the perpetual right to produce the production? Generally speaking, as you were saying, sophisticated parties would shy again, would make sure that that is not the case. And they would say, okay, you can exercise the option, but you need to get into principal photography within two years of exercise of the option. 
failing which the rights will revert and come back to me, the intellectual property owner. I think though, what people sometimes leave out is what happens with the development materials and the pitch materials that have been created, whether during the option term or after exercise of the option. And by saying that the capital P property, as it's defined in the agreement, reverts to the copyright holder. Well, what happens with that gray area of things that are created on, they're based on the capital P property, but they were created actually by the producer or the producer commissioned it by to by another writer, etc. That's kind of a limbo zone because while the property, while the copyright in those development materials would presumably vest in the producer, who commissioned or created it, that producer can't do anything, can't exploit it because the underlying property on which it's based has now reverted to the rightful copyright owner. So I think what ends up happening um, and what I've seen is there's a price for acquisition, whether it's actually specifically set out saying that I will pay you X number of dollars to acquire all development materials, whether it's, you know, a numerical value that's set out, whether it's the producers out of pocket, direct verifiable costs, um, sometimes with a VIG, like plus 15%, something like that, but putting in their, um, at that point, it wouldn't actually be a reversion, but it would be an acquisition of any development materials that were created based on the property. And then sometimes there's trailing rights that attach to that. So if the person should, and it's generally at the copyright owner's election or option, should they choose to acquire the rights in those development materials? Well, what happens then if a production were to get off the ground and get made on the basis of those development materials? Does the producer have any rights in that? And sometimes you negotiate what are called turnaround costs and saying, okay, well, if it does get put into production based on these development materials, then I, the producer that created or commissioned them in the first instance, would be entitled not only to the price that you're paying me to acquire them, but then a profit participation or uh, developed an association with credit or some sort of additional terms that would attach showing the contribution of that producer. Nice. Love it. Yeah. I think one thing that people sometimes don't appreciate is that, you know, an option agreement may have a, a particular term, but there can be obligations that continue well after, you know, the, the nominal term of that option agreement or, or continue even after the rights in the underlying material have reverted back. So I think that's, it, it's, you know, something that people really need to pay attention to. I think one thing also that bears a bit of a conversation is how people handle the definition of the purchase price, right? Like now, if everybody's doing things as simply and straightforwardly as possible, you're going to have just a dollar amount, right? Like the purchase price will be X number of dollars. I think that makes everybody's life a lot easier. It becomes a bit of a challenge when the purchase price is a formula or a function of some other amount to be determined. And so I see a lot of people getting tangled up in this, both at the negotiation stage, but also even once the agreement's been signed and, and you know you have to kind of execute on the obligations in the agreement. So particularly where the purchase price is expressed as a percentage of, let's say, a budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I often, you know, counsel clients two things really. I mean, one is they have to make sure that 
they put kind of hard parameters around that uh, equation or around the product of that equation. In other words, it's 5% of the budget, but it's no less than X number of dollars and no more than Y number of dollars, but also just tangling with what a budget is, right? Because the budget can be sort of a moving target um, and it can be difficult to determine what the actual, like, what is it that we're supposed to be looking at in order to make this calculation? Do you sort of find that those definitional challenges uh, cropping up? I definitely do. And I, I agree with you that putting floors and ceilings on purchase prices do uh, mitigate some uncertainty in that respect. But I do like when things are expressed as a function of the budget, because especially if they're going into this option agreement at the very early stages, they haven't solicited any interest at all. They haven't even started muttering anything about the project, that they don't know what form this production could take. If this is just a pitch document and it could conceivably turn into a feature film, well, that's a very different budget than a miniseries, which is a very different budget than an MOW or an ongoing television series. So I think that providing or setting out a purchase price as a function of the budget allows for flexibility. And I think that it allows the IP owner also to have, um, it's more of the benefit to an IP owner as well, because they don't want to short themselves, I guess, by agreeing to something that is $10,000 when this could be a $30 million project. So yes, it provides flexibility. I think that caps by floors and ceilings do provide a little more certainty. And I've also seen instances in which um, there's different purchase prices depending on what type of production it is. But again, that can get very messy trying to conceive every possible permutation. But I've also seen purchase prices dependent on levels of budget, so different tiers. So what, rather than it being 5% of the budget, it's X number of dollars if the budget is between X and Y. Y number of dollars if the budget is between, you know, 10 million and 20 million. And then that allows also certainty for the producer. Awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to see exactly how what you had said at the outset, which is, you know, option agreements can get really complicated. And now we're starting to see how it is that they become so complicated, right? And by trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the purchase ways? Well, there's a million different ways that this thing could get exploited. And we kind of have to try and figure out every possible variable there to make sure we we capture the value or, or are getting paid a, a fair price. And Another thing know, that I, I sorry, I, go ahead. Sorry, just one thing. I used to see instances in which there was a different purchase price if it was a Canadian commission series, for instance, versus a U.S. commission series. And uh, there's either production bonuses or again, an enhanced purchase price for a pre-sale to a U.S. licensee. But then, and that was actually a more narrow definition of what a U.S. licensee was, and that was usually limited to network or major cable broadcasters. But then now we have the Netflixes and the streamers of the world who are paying just as much, if not more, than networks, and are they part of that equation? Or you also have some studios that aren't paying as much as they used to, that they're, that they're um, budgets aren't going to be that much greater than a Canadian commission series. So now 
rather than tying it to the licensee, I usually suggest tying it to the budget because again, a US licensee doesn't necessarily mean a bigger budget and a Canadian commission series doesn't necessarily mean a lesser budget. And you wanna provide some parameters around that. Right, great. So last sort of topic, and uh, you know, I, it strikes me that this probably warrants a, a follow-up episode because there's so much to talk about here. But last topic for, for this installment, oftentimes we will see that there's a desire on the part of the rights owner. So let's say an author whose novel is being optioned, a, a desire on their part to have some kind of ongoing participation in the project. In other words, they want to you know, render more writing services, or they want to be involved as a consultant, or they want certain approval or consultation rights. How do you recommend that producers handle those sorts of requests? Like, is that something that should be dealt with in an option agreement in a sort of very comprehensive way? Or do you sort of deal with it fairly sort of succinctly and just say you'll have consultation rights or you'll have, well, you'll provide writing services, but we'll deal with it in a separate long form agreement to be entered into later? I think it depends on the experience and the pedigree of the rights owner. I think that if this is Shonda Rhimes or like a very well, <laughs> a very experienced showrunner, you are going to want to, uh, both sides are going to want to negotiate the terms of the attachment, ensure that their creative voice is seen throughout the project, that they're locked to the life of the project. And therein lies the complicated factor of negotiating options option agreements because if you're talking about locked for life of this series okay what are the bumps uh, like what are what are the ep fees for every season what are uh, the subsequent season bumps what's the net profit participation whether as rights owner or as actual showrunner so it could become a very complicated analysis some people just say that they'll be attached uh, for in a role and for a fee to be negotiated in good faith. Um, I don't generally recommend that because it leaves it very open-ended, but I also don't recommend unconditional attachment because you would always want the broadcaster to have final approval rights. So everything should be conditional on broadcaster, distributor, financier approval. So it's a very tricky uh, balance to strike in order to have the rights owner to the extent also that the producer wants the rights owner involved. Like if the producer is trying to purchase this property, it's because they enjoy the voice that it was written in probably. So they want that rights owner to be attached in some capacity. So again, it's just going to be a tricky balance to strike. Nice, that's great. Jamie, this has been excellent. I feel like we've given listeners a really sort of good set of insights into the differences between these types of agreements, but also some really nice practical takeaways that they can implement in actually drafting and negotiating these things. So thank you so much for coming on here. This has been a pleasure. It, we, we waited too long to get you onto the podcast, but I look forward to many more appearances. And so in addition to saying thanks to you, just want to say thanks to our listeners. Please join us again in the future on future episodes of the Denton's Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Check out our blog for more insights into option agreements, other types of agreements, and other entertainment media law updates. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me, Bob. Take care, everyone.